spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, you gorgeous lot. Welcome to a brand new mini-series from the lovely people at History Hack. I'm Charlotte White, but you can call me Charlie, and this is Misunderstood. I'll be joined by a stellar lineup of guests who are each going to help me explore the lives of women who've perhaps been dealt a bit of an unfair hand by history. They may not all be great women who changed the world. They may not all be good women, but they will all be very interesting. Some have been forgotten, some ignored, some misrepresented, but they have all been misunderstood. My guest today is Helen O'Hara. She's a film journalist and editor-at-large of Empire, the world's biggest film magazine. She hosts the Empire podcast and is the author of Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. Now, I was lucky enough to interview Helen when that book came out, and we'll be sure to share the link so that you can listen back if you missed it, because it was a brilliant episode, if I do say so myself. Helen is here today to talk to me all about the women who built Hollywood. Hello, Helen. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. I'm so excited to have this discussion. Um, Women and Hollywood is obviously something that's very timely at the moment. We're seeing the huge success of the Barbie movie. Did you see it? Did you love it? Oh, yes. And yes, I've seen it only twice so far. I am planning (laughs) to go back again. But uh, it's the most fun I've had in the cinema since probably probably Avengers Endgame and the, and the biggest kind of reaction I can remember in a cinema since yeah. Avengers Endgame you know just people whooping and cheering at various moments in the film I, I just had a blast fantastic well I think that's a whole other episode that we could record <laughs> quite happily um it goes without saying listeners of Misunderstood should see Barbie you will love it it's a new wave of feminism um so <laughs> we're going right back to the beginning now Helen, to the casual observer of Hollywood, it may seem that the concept of women directing movies like our friend, the wonderful Greta Gerwig, is a relatively new thing. But there's a secret side to Tinseltown's origin stories, isn't there? There is. And and the reason it's secret, we'll get to, but it's basically because they were deliberately left out of the what? history books. <laughs> I know. Um, but yes, there, there were women making films at the very dawn of filmmaking. So so cinema goes back to about 1895. That was the first Lumiere Brothers projection of a moving image. Um, and Hollywood didn't become like Hollywood until 1913. And in the sort of not quite 20 years between those two, and even into the sort of five, six, seven early years of Hollywood itself, there were a number of female directors. And by the way, not just female directors, female producers. Mm. By some estimates in the sound era, 50% of scripts were written by women. We're still not back there. It's <laughs> crazy. So yeah, so there was a, there's been a lot of, uh, there were a lot of women making films. There were a lot of women in in involved in kind of shaping what film would be and there was a time when women were actively sought out to be involved because it was felt that they their involvement would make cinema seem respectable I guess would move it away from the suspicion that it was going to be like a peep show thing it was going to be slightly dirty slightly slightly seedy um having women involved because of course at least as they believed in those days women were superior morally to men would mean that cinema also became morally superior it could be used to educate to elucidate as well as to entertain and so women were sought out as 
writers as you know producers as as directors and as you know as as an audience they were they were actively chased as an audience people thought about what women would want to see and for those of us who've grown up since essentially the 1970s that may seem like a radical notion because I think we've rather lost that today <laughs> we certainly have um the the whole idea of getting women on side I think is is incredible. And there's a, a wonderful story in Women versus Hollywood about Thomas Edison mm. even reaching out to women in 1891 to show them the new technology. Yeah. So he had it wasn't a projected film, but it was a sort of a look in a box and you can see <laughs> you can see things. And um and he had basically Essentially, the Women's Institute, it wasn't, but, you know, it was an American kind of equivalent of the Women's Institute, come along to his workshop and he showed them around and he charmed them and everything else. And he showed them this this film and the film that he had put in, especially for the occasion, was a a handsome, I assume, charming young man uh, (laughs) walking along, looking around towards as it were the viewer uh, doffing his hat and I think blowing a kiss so immediately you're trying to charm women into thinking that the movie image is something they can get behind gosh I just think it's wonderful because yeah (laughs) the the whole sort of peep show aspect Mm -hmm. of this you know the 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 lady taking her clothes off in the sort of you know the, the the little thing that spins around I mean yeah they they loved all of that sort of stuff um so they get women involved very early on with the with the production of cinema. Mm-hmm. And they get women involved in the exhibition side as well, don't they? Yes. Yeah, so there were this is the another weird thing. There there were never a lot of women in projection, but there were a lot of women in exhibition. So a lot of women who essentially had what would now be cinemas, but in those days, often they were kind of traveling shows that, that basically put up a sheet and a projector in a barn or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yes, it was women who did a lot of the programming because, again, it gave it an air of respectability and it gave it an air of importance that maybe other would otherwise wouldn't have had. And th- some of the most successful of these women put a huge amount of thought and effort into this. They would have sort of little musical recitals in between these very short films because films in those days were sort of 30 seconds to five minutes in many cases. Um, so they would do little musical things. They would have musical accompaniment. They would emphasize that this was okay for families. They would sort of try to program a variety of films so there was something for everybody to enjoy. Um, they could they sort of gave this air that they could be trusted, that you could you could be assured that if you brought your family, you would have an edifying and uplifting evening was the idea, you know. <laughs> so so that was kind of their um their way of selling cinema as a concept in the very earliest days. And that carried over into, you know, when cinemas started to be purpose-built buildings and they became a real phenomenon, which they did, by the way, very fast. Within 10 years of the of the technology being first exhibited, they were everywhere across the US. You know, so this was this was a really, really booming technology. And these women were at the forefront. Amazing. I think this is one thing that gets a little bit lost mm. in looking at the history of cinema is how quick those changes happen and how how quick you go from you know a a five minute thing to show look at this technology that we've got to actual narrative silent films to then the talkies I mean it's it's vast I mean it's like 20 odd years isn't it it is yeah and it became like one of the US's biggest industries within essentially that 20 25 year period it's it's astonishing from zero to hero kind of thing it's an astonishing astonishing curve um because it did you know it it met a need it meant that even if you lived in you know some very small town in the middle of nowhere you could see drama played out you could see comedy played out by the by the best in the business you didn't have to go to new york city or whatever you you could you could see it in you know, Peoria uh, was the was the classic <laughs> town, wasn't it? So, so, so yeah, it 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 just it just mushroomed. Amazing. So we've got women uh, in charge of exhibition, and we know that you know when you look at sort of the real, as Hollywood becomes a business, that these are the people that can very much drive content. So you've got women who are who are curating and showing films. They mm-hmm. then get some influence over over the programming because they know what what sells um let's let's dive into this this little window um so i'm looking at sort of 1907 to 1920 Mm. where women are as central 
to filmmaking as men, if not perhaps more so if they're in charge of exhibition. And this brings us on to the first of the women that we we really want to to discuss. Um, who was Alice Guy or Alice Gee? I'm guessing Alice Gee. Yeah, she was. <laughs> um, she's a fascinating character. So she had uh, got a job as an assistant to Leon Gaumont, and Gaumont was one of the. He was a friend of the Lumiere brothers. He was one of the guys who was at the very forefront of developing, you know, cinema projection as we would now think of it, and um, and. Alice, uh, her her father had died. She had gone out to work to support her family and she had gotten a job as his secretary. So she went along. She was probably at the, that first, you know, Lumiere Brothers exhibition of train pulling into a station. But she certainly saw it within a few weeks. And at some point in the very, very, you know, short term after that, she asked her boss if she could borrow one of his cameras because he was developing all these cameras and all this technology as well. And she used it to put on essentially a tiny little play about a 30 second thing about a fairy picking a baby from a cabbage patch, uh-huh. the original cabbage patch doll, if you will. <laughs> um, and um, and this is essentially this was in 1896, which was within five months of the Lumiere Brothers film. As far as we know, this is the first narrative feature in the world. And I, like I say, only 30 seconds long. It's actually been lost. And the only copies we have now are remakes from, I think, 1902 and 1906. But, but she did do it. There is, there's evidence, there's documentation that she did it in 1896 originally. And it was um, La Fée Oshu. And it is believed to be the first narrative film anywhere in the world. And that was directed by a woman. As we would call it directing now. In those days, they didn't, none of these jobs were like divided up. Everybody <laughs> did whatever. So on the back of that, she started doing lots of these and she started doing lots of these little films to showcase what Gaumont's technology could do. So if any of you know the history of Pixar, it's actually a lot, lot like what happened in Pixar in the early days. You had um, people developing these incredible technologies and then you had a filmmaker, in Pixar's case, John Lasseter, in Gaumont's case, Alice Guy, who would do little films to showcase what what is possible. She was making... In the 1900s, like 1900 to 1907, when she left Gaumont, she was doing, you know, um, uh, colour films. She was experimenting with sound. She was learning filmmaking and editing techniques. You know, she was really pushing the envelope because that was essentially her job, because she was head of production at Gaumont for about 10 years. And during that time, she made something like a thousand films. Now, (laughs) again, we're not talking three hour epics. We're talking like some of them were 30 seconds long. Some of them were just 10 minutes, whatever. But by the end of her time, like she was getting into proper long films by the standards of the day. She was doing a hunchback of Notre Dame. You know, she did biblical films. She was taking on these kind of epic subjects and making movies of them. Um, and she had to fight for her position quite a bit. So there was a, there was a famous case where they began to realise that head of production was quite an important role suddenly. And they suddenly realised, well, hang on, we have a woman doing it. Good Lord. What? what? <laughs> this doesn't seem possible. So they tried to remove her and she had to appeal to uh, to the board. And Gustav Eiffel, as in the Eiffel Tower, uh, was the one who apparently went to bat and saved her job and said, you know what, she's doing well. Why would we take her away? So... So she stayed on for a long time, but by the end of her time there, this and this is something that will come back into the into the stories of these women, um, she was finding the crews harder to deal with. She was finding that crews were suddenly beginning to to react to having a woman as a boss and were trying to push back. Uh, one of her sets that she was about to shoot on the next day was burned um, with a, a crew member claiming, oh, I thought you'd finished with that one, but she always suspected sabotage and, and that kind of thing began to wear on her. So she went and set up her own studio. She'd recently married to a guy called uh, Monsieur Blash, hence she's mostly known as Alice Guy Blachet. And she uh, she went off to America with him, set up her own studio and uh, continued making films there for about another eight to ten years. It's just incredible. Isn't it because amazing? As anyone who who loves films, um, regardless of whether you've, you've studied in, in an academic sense, we all understand the language of film. It's ingrained into us. We're we're brought up understanding. We understand that when a picture cuts to another picture, that you know that the time has passed. We understand, we understand editing, we understand narrative structure, we understand stories having, you know, beginning, a middle, and an end, and all of this sort of stuff. But someone like Alice Gee mm-hmm. is starting from nothing. Nothing. 
absolutely nothing and playing around with the new tech and essentially creating a language that we know today. So there's an argument that she, you know, she invented the concept of the fantasy film. Um, yeah. I'm guessing with, you know, babies being um, abducted by fairies or fairies. I, th- I think it, was, it seemed to me they were kind of harvesting babies, <laughs> not, in a, not in a matrix sort of a way, you know, but like, like the baby was naturally growing in the cabbage patch and then she took it and gave it to the parents. I think, I think, I think it's meant to be fairly benign. Fantastic. Okay. So it's all, it's all in the common good. Loving it. Um, are there any, I mean, I'm guessing there must be so many, but I'm going to ask the dumb question. Are there any modern films that wouldn't exist without Alice Guy and her work? Well, I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, everybody was building on her work. But but yeah, I mean, look, she was one of the first to be doing it. So by definition, she was part of that first wave. She was part of showing off the techniques. She was part of, you know, I guess, getting people excited about the potential of colour and sound back in the day. You know, they were already kind of looking to see what could be done. Um, and, and you know, she was kind of, as you say, pushing the envelope and figuring out what you could do with this technology. Because, you know, the Lumiere brothers and the earlier films that early films that they did and that, that Gaumont did and so on, they were essentially I mean, documentaries is probably too strong a word, but they were they were just slices of life. They were people leaving a factory, a train pulling into a station, things that happened in the world. And she saw it more as a chance to, you know, translate plays, translate stories, translate little fantasies into reality. And that is something that obviously, you know, other people then built on. Georges Méliès, of course, was pretty much a contemporary of hers. Also in France, he was doing, you know, Voyage to the Moon and all that kind of stuff. So it's not like she was the only one doing it by that stage, but she was the first and that does count for something. And the fact that she worked at Gaumont for as long as she did meant that she must have had an influence on the French film industry. Like there's, it's just not possible to say otherwise. And because there were essentially no national divides in film industries in those days, because they were all silent films, so it didn't matter yeah. what language you you spoke. You know, that has got to have reverberated out into the wider world. I mean, so many of these films are lost that it's very hard to say exactly, you know, how much of things she did. But she was so active for so long and she did develop as a filmmaker herself that that's got to have played a role. I mean, I'm I'm just going to say it. I've got, I've got to bring it up. I know we're going to talk about this later, but if if Alice Guy made a thousand films mm. how come so many how many how come they're lost and George Melies um Voyage to the Moon is still um shown to film students mm. today I mean not all of them are lost but yes a, a majority I mean a majority of all silent films as you know have been lost um partly that's because of the delicacy of the material partly it's the extreme flammability of the material <laughs> yeah. um partly it's I think didn't they didn't they recycle some of the material during World War 1 it was actively taken and reused yeah. um and also just no one at that time or very few people at that time saw a value in in preserving it and maintaining it and that's particularly true when sound came in now this is one of the reasons that i think so many of these women's stories have been lost is that when sound came in they wanted to on a very basic level they wanted to convince theaters to invest in putting in a sound system and and as with today if you're if you're a cinema owner and you're asked to upgrade to 3D or whatever James Cameron is demanding now <laughs> you know it costs a lot of money so they kind of wanted to to convince all these studio all these cinema owners look whatever you've been showing in the past is garbage this is what you need you've got to have sound everything else is rubbish and so so silent films were were deliberately as well as sort of accidentally disrespected and disregarded and put aside and lost. And 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 with them, of course, went the record of so many films by women, um, which again, you know, because the because by that point the the industry had kind of settled down and, and pushed aside almost all of the female filmmakers. Um that that was considered a sort of an awkward phase that they didn't want to talk about anymore. It's it's one of the great, you know, great shames, I think, of, of Hollywood history, because, you know, Hollywood did Hollywood was born at a time when women were fighting for suffrage, were fighting for the vote. Um, it was a time of hope. It was a time when you might have expected there to be a little bit more in the way of equality. And and no, absolutely not. If anything, less. Well, 
Okay. Taylor's old as time. <laughs> um, I do love that. I love that description of, of the silent era as you know, Hollywood seeing it as it's sort of awkward, awkward, awkward teenage years. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's true. You know, they, they wanted to kind of cover up the pictures with the spots on and, and, you know, the, cover up the films with no sound. It's a very, very sad, very sad. Um, so back to Alice, she's working um, with Leon Gaumont and he must've, I mean, did he treat her well? Or you think that she's you know, showing off all his tech? She's doing these amazing things. He must have treated her like gold, right? He he treated her, I think, okay to begin with. I mean, he gave her these opportunities and that's not nothing in those days. A lot of people wouldn't have done the same. Um, but, but when it came down to it, I mean, the fact that she had to fight for her job to the board is not great. Mm. And what's worse from his point of view is that, you know, there was a, an official sort of history of Gaumont written when he was still around, still in charge. And she was completely left out. And and that doesn't really happen by accident. And it certainly doesn't happen if someone is looking out and, and saying, oh, hang on, what about my trusted old collaborator? Mm. Why haven't you put her in? So, so I think... Um, you know, I, I I think at the very le- at the very least, he came to the conclusion that he also had to sort of leave out these awkward stages and the, the awkward bits of the history as they now appeared. Um, at most, he was at best, a, a, you know, a fair weather friend, I think, to her. Well, so she goes off to Hollywood. She but... goes off to New Jersey. <laughs> she goes off to New Jersey. I mean, that sounds much less glamorous. Can't we just say that she went off to Hollywood? Let's call it. It was kind of the Hollywood of its day, sure. <laughs> but it's not. It's not so straightforward, is it? Because mm. you know, there there isn't a Hollywood to you know stick your bindle on your on your shoulder and and you know go and make yourself a star in yeah. 1907. So how does? Alice find her creative outlet in the US. So she she basically she married a cameraman and the two of them went off and they set up their own studio and they set up a studio um, where they had control. And, and the thing about films in those days, you have to remember, is they were first shorter um, and therefore cheaper and and you could essentially do them in one building so you probably needed a lot of these buildings had a sort of glass roof so you'd get as much light as possible because they didn't really they hadn't really figured out studio lighting enough to get the impression they needed on the on the very you know uh, limited film at the time um but you basically could do it in one building and there'd be sort of rooms downstairs dressing rooms makeup rooms and and one person could really make a film. You know, you could have Alice Gee and certainly her husband kind of running around, sorting out the tech, talking to the actors, possibly even helping with costume and makeup, makeup, but certainly overseeing costume and makeup, and um, and then and then shooting a film. You know, in in a few days or a week, because we're talking ten to fifteen minute films. Mm-hmm. So you know. While she was, that was all anybody was doing at the time. It wasn't like she was doing these tiny films and somebody else was across the road making an epic. That was what filmmaking was. But because it was essentially a cottage industry, you know, if you were a sort of middle class woman, had a little bit of money, which she did, then you could make films and you could make enough money to do that. As films became longer, that's when it became a problem. Once you get into these half hour long epics, my God, you know, <laughs> you start needing more money and you start needing investment. And that's when, when investors came in, that it became really, really uh, difficult for, for people like Alice. Now, she kept going a bit longer and it helped, I think, that she was married and she could essentially use her husband as a front man. And we will, I think we're going to talk about Lois Weber and other first, her contemporaries who had the same kind of arrangement. If they presented as a directing, a filmmaking team, then great. The the, the, the financiers were absolutely fine with that. If if they presented as a female creator, then, oh, hang on a minute, that's a bit weird. We don't know how people are going to go with that. So it's, it's the money that was really the choke point for a lot of these women's careers. And so it proved for Alice. So when her marriage fell apart, she had a bout of um, Spanish flu in 1919. Mm. And after that, she kind of couldn't get back on her feet. She couldn't find the investment to keep going. She couldn't compete with the much longer, much bigger films that were coming out of Hollywood by then because Hollywood kind of got going in 1913 or so. Um, That was when her filmmaking career really ended. But in those early days, I mean, she had, you know, a good, what, 10 years of successfully making her own way, making her own films outside of Goldmore. And after that initial 
1,000 or so films. Crazy. She really, she leaned into the female experience, didn't she? I think this is what's what's really interesting about, about Alice Guy as a, as a female pioneer. There's no sort of, um, she's not sort of shying away from the fact that she is a woman making films. Um, and she's making, I mean, they're, you, you could describe them as being unashamedly feminist films as early as 1906, um, which is just mind blowing to think that that happened. Um, one in particular I wanted to ask you about, would you tell us about, I love this, tell us about the consequences of feminism. <laughs> the consequence. Yeah, this is, this is an incredible movie because it's kind of, it's kind. do you know what? It's kind of Barbie. I'm literally just putting this together as I'm saying it, but it's kind of Barbie it. because it imagines a world where women are the dominant gender, mm-hmm. right? So so you have all of these women in big hats, big tall women striding about like they own the place, kind of catcalling men. Men are sort of scurrying around trying to keep them happy, make sure everything's okay. And um and and basically at the end of the uh, the film it's a, it's a short film but it's got lots of these kind of quite shocking ideas for the time like oh my god what, what's this you know <laughs> men taking orders from women good lord and at the end the men rebel and they take over a bar and they throw out all the women and they sit drinking and of course what an audience is meant to take from this is that if men don't shape up maybe women will rebel and they'll take over the bars and they'll sit around drinking um and she she made this twice. She made it in 1906 and remade it in 1912. I think the 1912 one is the one that survives. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, because it was because it was just this crazy what if sort of an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really shows, I think, where her head was, and it shows that she was, you know, she liked to kind of poke ideas and kind of play with some wild, outrageous notions, and 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 yes, you know, bring a little feminism into it, challenge this idea that women couldn't do more than they did. Amazing. I think she sounds she sounds incredible. And we're going to come back to come back to her story in a little while, because we we want to talk about the other women, because it wasn't it wasn't just Alice. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about a a woman who closely followed her. So we've touched on her name very briefly. So who was Lois Weber and how did she become arguably the most successful female director of the silent era? Yeah, I think I think she was. So she um, she started off as an actress. She was very pretty, which which as today often helps, you know, look mm-hmm. at Greta Gerwig and all the rest. Um, and she uh, she actually worked on a couple of Alice Guy films. She was in a couple of her films. I imagine she probably watched what she was doing, maybe asked some questions. We don't know that for sure. It's not really recorded uh, in, in any great depth. But she set up on her own at a similar studio with her husband, Philip Smalley, who Records don't show any record of him ever doing anything outside of her. But again, he could be her front man. He could be her connection to the bankers, Mm -hmm. keep the money coming in and sort of deal with that sort of side of things. But she was pretty early on, clearly the creative force in the partnership. And she had a really great line in, again, making films that discuss gender, making films that discuss social issues, Mm -hmm. you know, talking about poverty and gossip and you know ideals of truth and all this kind of big kind of philosophical stuff um but also you know doing so in a way that was palatable that was that was popular that was often a big big hit she um she she wrote a lot of articles this is more as her career goes on and she becomes very successful but she would write all these articles arguing for the importance of film as an art form which it wasn't really necessarily accepted yeah. as at the time um so she argued it was an art form she argued it was something to take seriously she argued it had enormous potential to teach and to educate as well as to entertain and she tried to make her films in that in that vein she she made a lot of kind of what she called i think message films so you know dealing with big issues um but also they were really successful and really popular and so from having her own little studio you know just as Alice Guy and, and the rest in their own sort of independent setups were struggling uh, Lois Weber and Philip Smalley were headhunted by Universal to come out to California um and and set themselves up as filmmakers at Universal so Carl Lamely uh, headhunted them and brought them to Universal where she was one of the most important directors on the lot and she made the prestige Bluebird films. <laughs> and, you know, she got a lot of freedom, a lot of support, a lot of money. She was, I think, the second highest paid director, director, not just female director, director in Hollywood. Wow. Um, and and was considered very important, very successful, a real kind of auteur by the standards of the day. 
that's just, I mean, it's a phenomenal thing if you sort of project that onto today mm. to imagine that that world now. It yeah. feels it feels a million miles away. It just does not feel like you you that you would get a female director being in the same league as the established male directors, let alone achieving the status of auteur. Well, this is the problem. And I think, we're, you know, we're beginning to have these conversations and, and women are certainly beginning to push on this stuff. But if you think about, you know, Patty Jenkins had a huge hit with Wonder Woman and still had to fight for, a you know, a, an appropriate pay rise on Wonder Woman, too. You know, um, uh, you know, Catherine Bigelow won the Oscar for uh, for The Hurt Locker and still had to fight for her next film. You know, it, it's this uh, it's this constant struggle to kind of push to the next thing and 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 benefit from success this is one of the things that female directors nowadays I mean not to get too off topic but mm-hmm. female directors nowadays even if they direct a hit the sequel often gets given to a man <laughs> right mamma mia twilight you know you name it wayne's world all directed by women sequels all given to men you know so it's a real it's been a real problem that women have not been able to build that kind of career momentum because they haven't been given credit for their successes and they are definitely still given blame for their failures so how do you kind of get past that um but with with Lois Weber she was able to push on through you know she was able to parlay that success into another film another film another film until of course you know she wasn't was she allowed to fail because I, I often think that this is again, this is a real, yeah. a real sort of um, distinction that we see between male and female directors. In that, you know, Steven Spielberg can have an absolute flop, um, real stinker, and hey, hey, there's still... no real stinkers. In <laughs> Hang on, a second. Okay, but yes, I take your office, point. <laughs> box office stinker, um, and he can have another film. He can have another yeah. go because he's Steven Spielberg. Yeah, so. Was she allowed to? Was she allowed to fail? She up to a point, and I think partly that's because they weren't necessarily keeping track in the early days, which probably helped. Mm. Um, but there was a point. It came in the late 1910s, beginning of the 1920s, when suddenly her message movies, you know, seemed to be too he- kind of heavy for the audience. Mm. Like this is the beginning of the jazz age, the flapper era, and they didn't want lectures anymore. They just wanted to watch, you know. Clara Bow dancing or something, you know. <laughs> so, um, and so her her films did stumble a little bit, but they didn't stumble enough to explain what happened in her career or indeed other female directors' careers. And I think what we have to do is put down the end of their careers in into the context of Hollywood becoming a bigger and bigger industry and it being a bigger and bigger deal. Yeah. And um, and it does seem like it was essentially a deliberate decision to start giving jobs to the boys uh, instead of the women. Now, there, there's an element of boys coming back from the war and, you know, women having to give up jobs and let them and step aside, as happened at the end of World War II. But there hadn't that hadn't been as big a factor in World War One. It simply wasn't as big a factor in World War One. And also women were already being pushed out by about 1917, 1918. So successful directors like Lois Weber were still hanging on at that point, but other women who had come up behind her were suddenly finding they couldn't break through. So, um, so yeah, you did have that sort of um, tightening up. So by, by the early 1920s, Lois Weber was technically still standing, but she'd made almost all of the films she would ever make as a director. Um, and, and other female directors were basically falling by the wayside and until only about I mean, there were a couple who made like one film, but basically Dorothy Arzner was the only one standing by the end of the 1920s, by the, by the middle of the 1920s. Um, like I say, there's a couple of exceptions, one film each, but basically Dorothy Arzner is it for the early studio era. It's it's incredible because, you know, seeing seeing what a big deal Lois Weber was for one minute mm-hmm. um, and then finding nothing of her in any history books that are only a few years later than her. So she, she ran for mayor of universal, didn't she? So this is, this is how, how we sort of see the beginnings of Hollywood and the golden age starting to come. So tell us about 
Lois at, at Universal and what, what is the mayor of Universal? Yes, it was. I mean, it was mostly, let's be honest, a publicity stunt. Um, but but it was it was kind of a cool idea. So the idea was like, we have so many people working on the Universal lot. We're essentially a town. Now, most people didn't live there, but they like to portray themselves that way. You know, yeah. it's this creative community. Oh, my goodness. Come out to Hollywood, be a part of it. Um, and we have this town and we need a mayor. And so we're running an election. And this was prior to the the women having the vote in the US. They did not yet have the vote, but they could vote in this election and they could stand in this election. And Lois Weber stood on not quite a suffrage ticket. She was always quite careful not to be too political, like a lot of female directors have to be now. They don't want to be too political. They don't want to be too outspoken because um, they will get stomped on in a way that again the men don't necessarily um but she did run she she did run and um technically came in second but then the person who quote-unquote won had to quote-unquote step aside for reasons <laughs> and so she got appointed mayor but but they that is interesting in itself they saw a publicity value in having this female director as their mayor they saw that there was a story there that would play that people would like and and I think she herself was always very conscious of this. If you read the interviews with her and, and read articles about her, quite frankly, she comes across as stuffy, like she wanted to come across as a very respectable middle-aged mother and wife. And that is the way she portrays herself. Yeah. And therefore, you can take her seriously when she says films are important, films are art, films matter, films have the potential to do enormous good. You know, she's speaking as a person of the maximum authority a woman could have at that time in that yeah. society. That's incredible. So the the size and the industry is eventually what pushes the women out, isn't it? This is this is the change that's happening. Um, so yeah. while while Lois is now feeling top of the pile, albeit from a publicity um, stunts point of view, uh, it's not long before that monster starts to eat the women. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, there's no smoking gun. There's no memo going around the Hollywood studio head saying we can't have any more women directing films. But but that must be essentially what happened. And I, I do put it down to the increasing scale, the increasing size, the increasing money involved. Yeah. You know, I think, and it's happened before in other industries. If you think about weaving, if you think about whiskey, those used to be cottage industries and there were a lot of women making whiskey or weaving or whatever else. Mm. When they became capital I industry with major bankers supporting them, then suddenly they are professionalized and men take over. And I think the same thing essentially happened to those early female creators in Hollywood. They could do it. If, if all you needed was essentially like a warehouse with a glass roof and some cameras, they could do it. And they did do it and they had a lot of success at it. But when you started getting into, you know, hour long, two hour long epics with thousands of people, you need a banker who's going to loan you a lot of money and bankers simply wouldn't lend money to women. I mean, think about it. This is a, still at a time and it was a time up until the 1970s mm. that women couldn't take out a loan without a man co-signing. So of course, bankers weren't going to lend them loads of money. Um, but yeah, I, I, that that is you know I did a lot of reading on this because I I thought there was going to be a smoking gun I thought I was going to there was going to be an obvious answer that everyone already knew and I just had missed on this yeah. and there isn't one single moment there isn't one single decision you know it wasn't like the women were expelled from the studios and asked never to come back it's just they stopped getting offers and that is the way that Hollywood works that's why Hollywood discrimination is so pernicious it's always because everybody all the time, even under contract in the studio system, mm. everybody's always essentially employed at will and only as, as big as their last film. There's always a reason to get rid of anybody, always. Yeah. Um, and and the studios will always argue that nobody is important. They're doing it right now with writers and actors who are on strike as we as we record this. So um, so they just argued, that, oh, the, you know, we don't need the women anymore. And what they did actually was they got a whole load of male directors who who kind of, you know, had a sense of what women might like to see. So they still valued women as an audience, but they ceased to think that maybe they needed female directors to deliver stories for those women. And you've got the the issue as well of the, you know, the the as the director becomes more more codified as a mm. position, as a role, you've then got a position of power and you're asking yeah. people to be subservient to that. So you're asking the all the men on the crew to report to a woman 
Yeah, and that was becoming harder and harder as time went on. So Alice Guy had had all those problems um, at Gaumont back in the sort of 1900s. Um, but also Lois Weber was finding that during her career in the 1910s. She had had she had gone from having crews who were absolutely happy to do whatever she asked of them to suddenly getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back on everything she asked for. Um, and, and it really was a problem. And I think it's interesting how women have had to deal with that over the years. So Dorothy Arzner, I think, got away with it because uh, frankly, she was quite butch. She was she was gay, but she was also quite quite a butch woman, and she sort of dressed in man's clothing. And I think maybe they sort of because there was only one of her, you know, she yeah. was able to kind of get away with it. Um, when you get into the fifties, uh, Ida Lupino was an actress turned director, and she had to essentially wheedle her crews into doing so. It's like, would you do? So? Would you just indulge me for a moment? Maybe just try this. Could we possibly try it this way? Would you mind awfully? Which is. I mean, can you imagine James Cameron doing that, you know, for a second ever, you know, but this is the way that, that female directors had to had to deal with crews. And I have heard stories from very successful female directors working today about having to be careful of crews essentially sabotaging their work because they still don't like being ordered around by a woman. It's crazy. It's absolutely shocking. I mean, you talk about the the different expectations on a set. Um one of one of the stories I love in Women versus Hollywood, and I can't remember the female director it's about. I think it might even be about Catherine Bigelow. Um, that you can have any sort of the, the idea of a male director is your man in your jodhpurs screaming, shouting at everybody, shouty man um, moment. But she was on the set and incredibly frustrated, took herself off for like five minutes, just to have a little cry away from the crew comes back and then gets a reputation for being overly emotional. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, I think it was Catherine Hardwick on Twilight, oh, actually. Uh, and, and again, by the way, a film that Kate, she brought in on a budget they reduced about two weeks before filming. They reduced her budget by about 10%. She brought it in on budget anyway, brought it in on time. You know, nobody got fired. Nobody had any major meltdowns, but she had a moment of crying. So they portrayed her as this crazy emotional person. And she didn't make the sequel to that very successful film. <laughs> You know, um, this is the way it goes. It's incredibly frustrating and it feels this this conversation is so relevant. So Alice and Lois, mm-hmm. we I feel like we're talking about, about them like Smurfettes. They weren't <laughs> they weren't the only ones, were they? There were other other women directing. There were. Yeah. I mean, at, at one point uh, at Universal, there were something like there were basically dozens of women directing and a lot of them were were actors turned directors some writers turned directors but there were dozens of them and dozens of films made by them um universal was particularly good but they weren't the only studio with with women making films and of course you you still could make these independent films and you had also not just white women i mean it was mostly white women under the studios to be clear because they were also super racist as well as being super sexist Mm -hmm. um but you did have people like marion e wong who made a, a successful film up in san francisco in the 1910s, I believe, you had uh, Maria P. Williams, who made films. She was a distributor. She got her start as a, as, a, as an ex- a exhibitor of films and um, and basically started making what she wanted to see. Um, so and, and she was a black woman um, in the in the sort of South. So there were other women around. But again, it was who got their foot in the door at the studio. And that was pretty much sort of middle class white women upwards. Um, and and yes, they they gradually stopped getting those offers. And I think, you know, it's one of these things, the the actors turned directors kind of got sidelined back into acting they got encouraged back into acting the writers got encouraged back into writing at least for a little while um so it was kind of a slow death and i don't think people necessarily realized how thoroughly they were being shut out as it was happening um but they were pretty much shut out for the entirety of the studio what we call the studio era from about the 1920s to the 19 essentially 60s and even today, you know, where the number of women making films in what we would call Hollywood is in generally in the single digits as a percentage. It's crazy. Scary. Even though they make billions for you. Um, Apparently so. Greta Gerwig. Um, so look, what happened to Alice and Lois? The, the, the phone stops ringing, I'm guessing. But what, mm. what happens to what do they do after Hollywood? And, and why this is this is the this is the real kicker for me why after a lifetime of loving film mm-hmm. and having a very expensive film degree why is this the first that i'm hearing of them from women versus hollywood and from our our conversations 
I think it's because, well, first of all, it's all that stuff about the the you know the silent films being pushed aside, and 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 really only the absolute biggest names of the silent movies surviving as names, you know, for all of us. So I think that's part of it. I think also it is the fact that um, that they were actively left out of the histories. That there was an active attempt to sort of. A high active, it's very hard to say, but they they were there was a choice made. There were choices made, certainly in Gaumont's case, to leave Alice out, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, Alice, after her bout with uh, Spanish flu, which nearly killed her, um, she went. She ended up having to go back to France. She was basically done in the US, but she spent the rest of her life trying to get films off the ground. She spent you know time writing scripts. Uh, she spent a lot of time fighting for her own legacy, trying to find copies of her films. You know, as as so many were lost, she was trying to preserve what she could, and she did, I believe, get the Légion d'honneur in France in the 1950s. So they did finally sort of acknowledge what she'd done, but it took another thirty some years for her to get to that point. Um, And it wasn't dissimilar for Lois. So she, um, again, she kind of got sidelined. They they sort of did that thing where, oh, you're terribly good at finding talent. And she was, by the way, she made, she made several stars in her films, terribly good at finding talent. Why don't we have you do essentially screen tests for people? You know, you're very warm and motherly kind of a person. You're, you'll put them at ease. You'll get a good test result. So she got sidelined into that kind of thing and screen testing and sort of working at the studio in a much lower role, a much lower capacity. She did manage to get one more film made mm-hmm. um, and went on location to do it. And, and uh, you know, in, in Hawaii, I think, like had to paddle generators over to the island where she was shooting because there was basically no infrastructure. Like went, went to all these great lengths, um, but it didn't, it didn't restart her career. And, and by that point, ill health kind of pushed her out of the game finally i think she died about a year and a half two years later so um so yeah they they never they couldn't they couldn't get anything off the ground again that one last film it was almost miraculous that that lois weber even managed to do that because as i said by that point it was her and dorothy arsner and no one else i think that was 1926 or so yeah um but yeah it, it was it was just it was just a a rejection of them by what became hollywood it's- Absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I have a book that I adore called History of the Film, and it's a, a history from 1938. And for all our all our listeners who who regularly listen to History Hack, you'll know that 1938 was a, a little bit of a turning point globally. Um, <laughs> Just a bit. Just a bit. And I got very excited because I found Lois Weber in the index, and so I, I turned to her page with all the all the excitement of a, of a young feminist. And um, I found that she is a footnote. Oh. She's a footnote to um, some, some discussion about German films in the 1930s. Um, again, a very interesting topic. Um, they're talking about the, the sort of novelty of German women directing some oh, films. Oh, goodness. And, uh, yeah, there's a um, – yeah, we, we saw the work of a woman film director – Asterix, see footnotes, Dorothy Arsner, Lois Weber, June Mathis had all directed films. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Within- June Mathis, more known as a screenwriter and producer, but um, but yes, she was <laughs> the one who discovered Valentino. Oh, well, we all thank so, her for that. Well done her, <laughs> yes. But, um, but I mean, yeah, it's literally they're able to draw up a quick list of suspects. If, they, if you mention a, a female American filmmaker at the time, you know, they have three names and that's it. So good luck <laughs> you know it's but that's that's the extent to which people were left out of the history they're one footnote mm-hmm. um and you know lois weber was at her time she was being mentioned in the same breath as you know dw griffith and cecil b demille she was on that she was considered to be on that level by people at the time she was using crazy things like split screen and montage and you know these fancy effects um you know she was really at the forefront of filmmaking obviously there's all sorts of with so many films lost it's hard to say who did what first mm-hmm. i think she's generally credited with the split screen thing but she and she and demille and, and griffith were like on that path together and sort of pushing those things forward and she gets you know a fraction of the column inches that they do not even usually yes 
it's incredibly frustrating but that's why we're here we're here to to bring bring these women back into um into the history books uh, we're not going to have them left out anymore helen thank you so much for joining me to talk about um to talk about alice and lois as just a final parting word from mm. the editor of at large of empire i mean i can't leave without this who should we be watching out for which which female directors are are coming up who are we got to got to keep an eye out for Oh, that's a very good question. Well, I mean, Greta Gerwig, I think we're already all watching, so I can leave that out. Um, uh, but the other ones, I mean, I think a lot of people saw um, Charlotte Wells' film last year, After Sun, the one that got Paul Mescal his Oscar nomination. That is fantastic. I'm really excited to see what she does next. And I actually just saw a film called Scrapper from another new director, Charlotte Reagan, which is really charming, really funny, really light. Um, and I'm I'm excited to see what she does. I think Nida Manzur, who made This Is Lady Parts on TV, if you've seen that Channel 4 comedy, Not amazing, that. amazing, amazing comedy. And she then followed that up with a film called Polite Society, which I think came out like the week before Guardians of the Galaxy and just got flattened by it. But you have all missed out on one of the best cinema experiences of the year. I'm just telling you that. That was hilarious. It was so fun. <laughs> so I'm really excited to see what she does next. I think it's going to be great. Um, so there are like there are all these incredible women coming through. I think the problem is at the moment is that is not that Hollywood has no ideas. Hollywood is full of people with great ideas. Hollywood executives have never had fewer ideas in their life and never been more hostile to new ideas. So we need all of these incredible women and incredible other people to get past them and start making great movies again, because the potential right now is better than it's ever been. Amazing. Well, we end on a hopeful note. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you for joining me today. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.